Episode 48, 13th of February, 2012. Matt Irvin, early BBC Special Effects Department and the Sky at Night episode from 1963. Hello and welcome to AstroTalk UK. ATUK is a not-for-profit amateur astronomy podcast produced by me, Gurubir Singh, an amateur astronomer based in the UK. For more information, see the About and FAQ pages at www.astrotalkuk.org. The same year that the first woman made it into space in 1963, a quaint children's sci-fi series called Doctor Who started on BBC television in the UK. Eventually, it became popular around the world and has enjoyed success once more since it restarted again in 2005. Matt Irvin worked in the special effects department of the BBC and made the original model of the K-9 for Doctor Who, but he also worked on other programmes, including The Sky at Night. One of the memorable characters from Doctor Who was... Davros, the horribly scarred, evil-looking megalomaniac creator of the Daleks and the arch-enemy of the Doctor. Listen out for my four par when I refer to Davros as Stavros. In this episode, Matt talks about the special effects department in those early days of the BBC and about the recently resurfaced 1963 episode of The Sky at Night, featuring Arthur C. Clarke. A link to the full episode of that 1963 recording is available on astrotalkuk.org. Well, I suppose the logical ones are going to be Doctor and Blake 7, but because um, when I was working for BBC Visual Effects, um, we all sort of did everything. So I was there while things like Red Dwarf and Hitchhikers was being done as well, even Star Cops. Um, I got it going back a while now, but actually one of my early jobs as a junior assistant was Moonbase 3. Does anybody remember Moonbase 3? 1973, I think. It could have been quite good, actually, but it, we only, I think we made six episodes. It was designed as 13, cut to 10, and we'd made six. But it's there, in the, it's there somewhere in the, uh, in, on the shelves of some, somebody's life. I suspect. <laughs> well, I know, uh, certainly from my um, early days, I remember Doctor Who very well indeed. How much of the design of the Daleks, say, were you involved with? Well, I have to say I wasn't at all with them because they were all designed, they're, so, they're even older than I am, actually. <laughs> Most of them look it. But they, they were in one of the very, very early episodes. In fact, I do remember um, as a kid, um, not exactly hiding behind the sofa, I think it was probably against the wall, you couldn't get it behind it, but sort of seeing these, these creatures thinking, hey, what, what, what on earth is that all about? You know, and it, hey, and it, and it pretty was pretty frightening, even in black and white television. Yeah. So you can see, actually, the shock value, strangely enough, and why people got worried by it, even now, looking at the, the redone Daleks for, for new Who, as I suppose we call it, um, they've still got that sort of menace behind them. 
because they because they they aren't creatures in the sense of having legs and things. They do glide, mm-hmm. however impractically, and they can now go up and downstairs, of course, which was a problem in the old days. Um, so they, they have that sort of menace behind them. But no, un- unfortunately, I had very very little to to actually do with them. I think I probably modified them and pushed them along on tracks at some particular point, but no, not the design. I remember Stavros was quite scary, particularly. I mean, they were pretty scary things for bearing in mind as a kids' program. Sorry, if you said Stavros, that's Harry Enfield. I think you think Davros was there. Was there? Um, oh, I don't know. They're pretty, both pretty scary, actually. Yes, and, uh, I could just see Harry Enfield doing that now. Yes. I think. <laughs> Is it fair to say that in um, the early days, the 60s and 70s, the impact of the visual effect was much more dependent on the skill of the artist? I think you're probably quite correct, yes, because we were working in 3D, uh, in, in reality, real effects, physical effects, whatever. Um, the problem, and I will say it is a slight problem with computers, the, the wonderful term CGI, computer-generated images, is that I always see it as it's another tool. And slightly glibly, I say, like any tool, if you use it badly, it'll cut you. <laughs> but the trouble is, because it is, it can com- generate complete images, um, we do know that some producers will say well okay we do it all with cgi and you you can you can fall down on that because you then end up using a lot more work to produce something other which you could have done in three dimensions a lot easier i mean i heard recently somebody i think somebody spent two years doing flames in cgi well why not just go and shoot some flames for real and put them you know map them into the shot i mean basically i like an easy life you know sort of the kiss principle keep it simple stupid you know let's do if we can put it on a bit of nylon let's put it on a bit of nylon how did the newly discovered episode of Sky at Night come about? Well, the the idea that there are programmes that the BBC has lost for what some reason or another um, out there in the big wide world, not just within the UK, is not new by any means. In, in the old days, programmes were sent out by BBC to, I would say, normally Commonwealth countries, which of course included a lot of... Uh, what are normally termed third world countries um, who um, perhaps didn't have the sophisticated equipment that the um, we had back in London and a lot of these were sent out on film they weren't sent out on videotape in the old days they were called tele-recordings and this is the, way, the reason we've got actually very old original Doctor Who's and um, things like 1984, Peter Cushing and the original Quater Masses. You, basically you, you have a, a film camera set up in front of a TV monitor I mean, a television set you sync the frame rates up because they actually run slightly differently. And as long as you've got that, and basically you um, do your program, there it appears on the screen, and there's your camera recording it. And then these could be sent out to broadcasting uh, organisations in other countries. And because they were on film and not on tape, strangely enough, this is the reason they've actually survived. If they got on tape, we'd have the same problem we have here in the UK in that tape, of course, can be reused. Um, It takes up a lot of space. The older two-inch tape took up a lot of space. Um, And, of course, if a programme... There was no idea of a programme going to be repeated again. Remember, we're going back to a time when home video recording is totally unheard of. Nobody had ever thought of people having a video recorder in their home in colour, heaven forbid. Um, so the idea was, um, this is the reason a lot of these programmes got wiped. It wasn't anything malicious by the BBC. It was, frankly, the fact of, well, we're never going to be able to show them again. Why keep them all? No, of course, in the, in the old days, videotape um, didn't exist. Film did, of course. So, of course, all the 
all programs that were recorded in the general sense were, of course, film. The rest of television was live. I mean, let's say like a news broadcast is obviously live these days, although it has inserts. Now, in the old days, the, the broadcast would have been live and there, there would be the filmed inserts. Now, that not only applied to news, it applied to uh, documentary programs, uh, comedies, uh, dramas. Sky at Night, of course, was started in 1957. So, of course, at that particular point, it would have gone out live. And anything filmed, Patrick may have done beforehand, would have been inserted into the programme. Now, unless you did the telerecording by putting the film camera in front, you wouldn't have that programme. You'd have the filmed inserts, admittedly, but you wouldn't have the whole programme. Now, that was done with a number of these programmes. And the one in question, the one with Arthur C. Clarke, the um, the only one actually Arthur ever did of Sky at Night, although he and Patrick had known each other for many, many years, back to t- teenage years. Um, but it was the only one he actually ever did in the studio. Um, and, of course, the fact it was missing was a bit of a disappointment. Uh, all of a sudden, and I think purely by chance, this one suddenly turned up. Somebody sort of, hey, we've got this here, are you interested, sort of thing. Uh, oh, it's a missing Sky at Night. Um, and if that one's out there, probably the others as well. I mean, this one is uh, obviously any Scott not as significant. It's got Patrick on it, but obviously this one is particularly significant because it is the only time Arthur was actually on it. The full program is now available online. Really, quite interesting to see the relationship between Arthur Clark and Patrick Moore calls him Arthur Clark rather than Arthur C. Clark. And uh, interestingly, Arthur refers to Patrick Moore as. Pat. Well, actually, in fact, we do it. We we do generally, actually. Patrick has always been Pat. I mean, now he's Sir Patrick, you know. No, Pat, Patrick, in, 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 in casual conversation, has always been Pat. Um, Arthur. Arthur was never art, actually. I think he was arty at school. He may have been arty at school, but he was always Arthur. He wasn't particularly worried about it one way or the other. But I think he added the C. There's no uh, secret on the C. The C stands for Charles. It was his father's name. One of the questions that... Uh... Patrick asks Arthur is his prediction on when men will get to the moon. And this is in 1963. And uh, Arthur Clarke does indicate that uh, he thinks that man will land by 1970. And uh, he was pretty much spot on. It was a year before, as it turned out. If you wanted to make a prediction of your own, uh, of course, since 1972, nobody else has gone back to the moon. When do you think we would get to the moon again, or indeed to Mars? Well, I suppose there's two separate questions there. The moon is a lot nearer than Mars, um, although it looks like there are plans by some people to do the Mars trip without even literally bypassing the moon. But logically, the moon is the next place to go back to. I have to say, um, my personal view is the magnificent achievement that it was, Apollo, unfortunately, was a dead end because it wasn't the way to do it. If you look at any of the books from the 1950s, I mean, a number of populist um, space science books done by people like Von Braun, illustrations by the wonderful Chesney Bonestell, um, you'll find that they weren't doing going to the moon straight from Earth. They were building space stations. Look at the Disney films of the ni- uh, 1954, I think it was. Um, you've got pictures of space stations being built. That's what you do first. Then you go to the moon and the planets. The slight problem was one President John F. Kennedy, who stated in 1961 that uh, we will have a man on the moon by the end of the decade. 
as Arthur predicted by 1970. Of course, this was 63. They, they, they knew that speech had been made. Um, I can imagine all the American aerospace companies at the time, of course, there were a lot. It wasn't all just Boeing. Um, there were a lot of independent ones, um, or separate ones, should I say. Um, they must have thought, oh, what do we do now? Because all our plans are for building very large rockets like the Nova, which never got built in the end, uh, to build a space station, and then we think about going to the moon. Apollo, as you said, I mean, it, it, you know, we went to Apollo 17. It was supposed to be to Apollo 20. At last, we got cancelled. One got turned into Apollo Soyuz. Um, and it was, unfortunately, a dead end, a magnificent dead end, but a dead end. And only then could they say, <clears throat> OK, we've got the Apollo bit that the president wanted out of the way. Um, we now turn our attention to what we should have been doing, which was building the space station. But of course, by then it was 20 years late. And only now can we start thinking. The International Space Station is a multitude of nations. And that nations also includes, of course, Russia, as well as the European Space Agency, Japan, Canada, and a lot of others. Uh, one it doesn't include is China. And who is the, thir the third nation in space with their own people in their own rocket? It is China. Given the current status of the American manned spaceflight program, which is somewhat stalled, Europeans have a program, but they haven't put anybody up in space by themselves. Japan and uh, India have also made some headway in this area. So it's lots going on and quite a lot to look forward to in the near future. So you reckon the next person on the moon is likely to be a Chinese? You hinted at the idea, of course, the Americans having a problem getting into orbit at the moment in that, in that the shuttle is no longer flying and relying instead on Soyuz, which is a magnificent little craft. It's a little craft that could. It very rarely fails. Occasionally, the A-type launcher, the main Russian launcher, which, remember, the basic core launched Sputnik 1 in 1957. It's the same basic rocket. I mean, it's got different upper stages now. But that's the one that's doing it. And they're having to rely on this craft, which is getting pretty old now. They had a very sophisticated system in the space shuttle. It could arguably be said too sophisticated, which is why it costs so much to launch and run. Um, but you think, well, hang on a minute, you, you've had a, a semi-reusable system. It should have been completely reusable, but never was. And you're now almost going backwards. The private companies, uh, well, not only have they been experimenting anyway, SpaceX have been launching the Dragon fairly successfully. Uh, of course, you've got scaled composites with Spaceship One. Okay, it's only to low Earth orbit. And I see the latest one, which is the Stratocruiser, mm -hmm have announced this new super takeoff system using an aircraft-type structure. I mean, it's, it's big. It's bigger than a 747. It's bigger than a 380. Um, and uh, with six 747 engines on it. But carrying rockets like uh, SpaceX underneath it to act basically as the first stage. Maybe that is the way to go. And, of course, that's what the Americans are saying. You know, we don't want to do it anymore um, as far as a government, as far as NASA's concerned. Uh, NASA goes back to being a research organization. Uh, basically, you want to put people into space, get private companies to do it. That's going to be the next stage as far as the Americans are concerned. Matt Irving from smallspace.demon.co.uk. That's great. Thank you very much indeed.